You know, we just sang, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, but I wonder if you've gathered here this morning and you're wondering, Lord, can I really trust you? Uh, Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked either out loud or perhaps deep in your heart, God, can I really trust you? How, How can I know that I can really trust you? Maybe that's actually what's brought you here today with your eternal future. Maybe you're wondering if you can really trust God to actually forgive you of all of those sins that you're so deeply ashamed about. Maybe you've come here to investigate if God can really be trusted, and you want to know why you can trust him. Maybe you're a Christian, and you've been following Jesus for quite some time, and you're wondering if you can really trust God. Maybe the landscape of your life has shifted under your feet just a bit. Or maybe it's just the day-to-day difficulty after difficulty after difficulty that you're facing. And it set you to wondering, can I really trust God? Now, maybe you are spiritually knowledgeable enough to know that you're not supposed to put it that crassly, right? You, you know that you're supposed to trust God with everything. But the truth be told, you're wondering if you can trust him. You're wondering if you can really trust God with your anxieties, uh, with your career, your friendships, your loneliness. Maybe you're wondering if you can trust God to find you a future spouse or that he will really be enough if he decides not to give you a spouse. Maybe you're wondering if you can trust God to give you a baby or to trust him that he'll be enough if he decides not to give you a baby. Maybe you're wondering if you can trust God with your reputation, with your health, with those relationships in your life that seem to be shattered into a million pieces. Maybe you're wondering if you can trust God, given his design for women and for womanhood, for wives and for moms. Maybe you're wondering if you can trust God, given his design for men and manhood, for husbands and for fathers. Maybe you're wondering if you can trust God with the salvation of your children or your grandchildren, or your parents, or your grandparents, your siblings, maybe even your spouse. Or maybe from time to time you wonder if you can trust God to take care of, sustain, and bless a congregation in such a transient place as this. These are things that we all struggle to trust God with from time to time. If you're human, even if you're a faithful and a strong Christian, from time to time, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we wonder, can we really trust God? Friends, fellow fearing Christians, this morning, we have a word from the Lord that assures us that we can trust him. We can trust him. Because he is the creator of the world. And because he has all power in all of his creation, he can bring all of his purposes and promises to pass. We can trust him because he is the great covenanter. He has irrevocably committed himself to his people to bless them in Jesus Christ and bring them safely and eternally home to himself. Ultimately, we can trust God because he has given us his most beloved son. And so he will give us all things that we need for life and godliness.
This morning, as we study Genesis chapter 15, I pray that you would come to know and be assured that you can trust God with those cares which weigh so heavy upon your heart. And I especially pray that you would come to know that you can trust God with your soul and your eternal future. Let's turn to this study now. If you haven't done so already, open your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word to Genesis chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 10. As we begin our study of God's word together, we need to remember the context of this chapter that we're studying together. It's important for us to remember the context every time we look at God's word together. In the opening chapters of the Bible, because we're here in the beginning, Genesis, we learn that God created everything and everyone for his own glory. He created man and woman in his image. He set them in a beautiful garden sanctuary. He gave them life and labor and love there. And yet, they were God's people living under God's place and God's rule, and yet they threw it all away, Adam and Eve did, by rebelling against God. They sinned against him. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God's command. And yet, even in the face of such rebellion, God promised redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that one day he would send the seed of a woman, which is to say a son. We know from the rest of the Bible that's his son. His son would come and crush the head of the serpent, thus defeating sin and Satan and death. God would send his son into the world so that he would bring his people back to God's place and live under God's rule and under God's blessing. The book of Genesis, the rest of it, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 on, from that point forward, is revealing how God is working out these promises to send a son, an offspring. In the course of the narrative, the focus of this fulfillment of God's promises narrowed in on Abram and his offspring, his family. God's son is going to come through one of Abram's sons. And so in Genesis 12, we saw God call Abram out of the world so that God might bless the world through Abram's offspring. God would give him a people and a place. God would give Abram lineage and land. In our last study, in Genesis chapters 13 and 14, we saw Abram trust the Lord and remain loyal to the Lord. Rather than scheming to secure God's promise of land, he left the decision up to Lot. And trusted the Lord would sort it out. And then when the king of Sodom came to him and said, come make an alliance with the world, Abram refused and remained loyal to the Lord. He remained loyal to the Lord of heaven and earth, paying tithes to the king of Salem, who was also a priest of God most high. By all accounts, Abram seemed to trust the Lord and remain faithful to the Lord. But look at verse 2 of chapter 15. Do you see it there? Abram asks a question about God's promise of lineage, God's promise of giving him sons, Genesis 15, 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram, he asks God a question about lineage. And he also asks him a question about land. Skip down to verse 8. Do you see it there? Abram's question of God's promise of land, Genesis 15, 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, underneath this question is the question of whether or not Abram will possess not just the promised land of Canaan, but also, as we know from the book of Hebrews, will Abram possess the promised land of heaven? His question about a son is not just about his son, but also, will you send that son who will defeat the evil one and conquer sin and death. You see these questions Abram is asking. He's asking, God, can I trust you? How do I know I can trust you? These are Abram's questions. And throughout the chapter, God 
he graciously assures Abram that he really can be trusted. We're going to see that God says to Abram, Abram, I'm the creator. You can trust me. Abram, I'm the great covenanter. I'm committing myself to my promises. You can trust me. Beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. You can trust God because he's the creator and the covenanter. We're going to unpack Genesis 15 in two sections under two headings. Trust God because he's the creator. Trust God because he's the covenanter. You can trust God because he's the creator and the covenanter. I believe there's an outline there provided in your bulletin that I trust will uh, help uh, you follow along. Let's take a look at the first point now. Trust God because he's the creator. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 6 of Genesis 15. Moses writes, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he, that's God, brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then God said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. These verses teach us that God can be trusted because he's the creator of all things. And as the creator of all things, he has all power to accomplish his purposes and promises. Notice how these verses are structured. They begin with God's gracious revelation to Abram there in verse 1. This raises a question for Abram there in verses 2 and 3. God reassures Abram that he will have offspring in verses 4 and 5. And Abram, he believes God's promises there in verse 6. Moses, the author of Genesis, is sure to alert us to the context of this conversation. They begin verse 1 there. He reminds us that God comes to Abram in a special vision, and God speaks to Abram after he's just given up the wealth he gained in battle. That's what happened at the end of chapter 14. Abram is not afraid that he's going to be left destitute. He remains a wealthy man, even though he's given up the spoils of war. What he is afraid of is that he's going to see his room go away. He probably thinks to himself, you know, that's actually what's going to happen with my wealth back home. It's going to go to somebody who's not my son. Will God keep his promises to me and give me a son? One of the things I think we ought to find comforting in this passage is that the Lord speaks to Abram's fears, doesn't he? He says, fear not, for a reason. He knows the hearts of his people are often filled with fear. He says, I am your shield, for a reason. Because he knows that we are tempted to look elsewhere for safety and security. Abram actually is going to do just that in the chapters ahead. God says, your reward shall be very great, for a reason. We are tempted to think that the wealth of this world is all the reward there is. And we have to secure it for ourselves and for the next generation now. These words are not just a comfort to Abram, but they're also a command. The Lord commands Abram to fear not. Where's the sensitivity in that? 
Well, look at what the Lord does next. You're really going to tell Abram, fear not? Well, look at what the Lord does next. The Lord, he pushes Abram into himself and says, I am your shield. God's declaration that he is Abram's shield is intensely personal, isn't it? God does not stand far off from his people. He draws near to us. He knows us. He loves us. Abram, all that is making you anxious and afraid is real, and you really can come to me. You really can trust me. This is a promise of divine protection. I'll be your shield. It's a comfort that we find several places in Scripture. So Psalm 3.3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Psalm 18.30, this God is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. God's revelation to Abram is a comfort, it's a command, and it's also an invitation for Abram to come to him, to trust in him. Christian, Abram's God is your God too. When fear wells up in your heart, he says to you, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward promise to keep you eternally safe in Jesus Christ. Your God is Abram's God. He has promised to keep you eternally safe in Jesus Christ. He will not let your soul be lost. And he promised that your reward will be great in glory. When you're scared, remember that God is your shield. Even, even when we know these truths, questions can still well up in our hearts, can't they? And that's what happens with Abram, doesn't it? I mean, the Lord's just said to them this, and, and then he asks that question. He presses God in verses 2 and 3. He's been trying to walk by faith. He's been trying to believe that God will give him a son and heir, and yet he continues childless, as he says there in verse 2. Continues childless. He recognizes that God has not given him offspring. Verse 3. Children are from the Lord. They must be given by the Lord. Abram recognizes this, and he's been holding on to the promise of offspring since chapter 12. He's worried that a mere servant, not a son, will be his heir. More than that, Abram wants to see God's ultimate promises of bringing that promised Savior and Son to pass. Maybe, maybe you are like Abram. Maybe you are trying to believe and trust God's promises. You're waiting for the fulfillment of God's purposes. You continue in some state of difficulty. Waiting, though, has maybe left you asking questions. The Lord God is not afraid of such questions. I mean, he's not afraid of his promises being thrown back in his face. Do you see that here? In a certain sense, Abram is saying, Lord, you promised. Brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you in your prayer life to lay out your burdens before the Lord as directly as Abram does here. Even when you're questioning in your heart, it is probably better to announce those questions to the Lord than to bury them in bitterness. I mean, he knows our hearts anyways, doesn't he? He knows everything about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Be as direct as Abram. Lift up your burdens and plead the promises of God. The Lord's response in verse 4 is every bit as direct as Abram's question. Abram, he says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. The Lord is direct. He's also dramatic. He reverses the uh, show and tell Right? He tells Abram what's going to happen there. Verse 4. And number the stars. He took him out of his tent and told him, look toward the heavens. And number the stars if you are able to number them. 
What's the point of this show? Here's the creator taking the creature out to look at his creation, to show him his power. I'm reminded of Jeremiah 32, verse 17, where we read, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for thee. And Psalm 147, verse 4, tells us that God determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. It's as if the Lord is saying, Look at how numerous those stars are, Abram. Look at how bright and beautiful and bountiful they are. I made them, I numbered them, I named them. What you can't fathom, I will fulfill. You're hoping for one son. I'm going to give you more sons and daughters than you have even dared to dream for. Don't be afraid, be amazed. The New Testament tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, that those who have faith like Abram are children of Abram. Beloved, you're part of the stars, the display that God put on there for Abram. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you're a child of Abram that God promised to him. Now, consider for a moment how this would have been received by the first audience of this book. Those who kind of just come out, out of Egypt, Moses is writing to them. They've come through the Exodus. They've made their way to Mount Sinai. Imagine them sitting around the campfire looking up at the night sky, hearing this story told. And then looking across the camps of their fellow Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. Scholars estimate that somewhere between 500,000 and 2 million children of Abram came up out of Egypt. That's either twice as many or four times as many the number of people who live in Arlington County that are spread across the 26 square miles here. What would have been the reaction of that Exodus generation sitting around the campfires hearing this story? Would not their hearts have been warmed by the truth that the Creator kept His promises to Abram? They saw God's creative power to fulfill His promises all around them. All those campfires lit up. All their fellow Israelites right there, sons of Abram, safely brought out of Egypt. They saw that God gave Abram sons. Not just a son, but scores of sons. But when Abram received this promise, this response, this reassurance from God, he had to walk by faith, not by sight. He couldn't see. He had no son before him yet. He couldn't see. The sons like the people of Israel at Mount Sinai could. And yet he believed, right? God said it, and that settled it, right? He believed God's promise. Look at verse 6 again. And he believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Let's not forget that bound up with God's promise of the kind of numerous sons is the promise that God would send his son. Bound up with that promise is the promise that God would send a particular son, the Lord Jesus, who would win over death. The sending of Abram's son, Isaac, would be but a foretaste of the fulfillment of God's promise to send his son. And Abram, he took God at his word, didn't he? He believed him. He believed God's promise. Just to know, as we sang, thus saith the Lord. God said it. That settles it. was Abram's attitude. This is what the Bible calls faith. Faith, belief, and trust are all kind of interchangeable terms. And what we're seeing here from Abram is that he was certain of what he hoped for, that God would give him a son. He was convinced that God would keep his promise, even though 
the present moment, he could not see it with his own eyes. Importantly, see this verse, Moses tells us that the Lord counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. In other words, saving righteousness was credited to Abram's account. Not because of his good works, but because of his faith. And Abram actually had good works when you think about it. He remained loyal to the Lord when he was tempted by the king of Sodom. He loved Lot and rescued him from the hand of evil kings. He wasn't like Cain. He actually was his brother's keeper. But it wasn't Abram's good works that saved him. It wasn't circumcision, as we read in Romans 4 earlier. It wasn't circumcision that saved him. God hadn't given circumcision yet. It wasn't law-keeping that saved Abram. God hadn't given the law yet. His faith, his belief in God, his promises was the instrument through which he received saving and justifying righteousness of God. From God. The Apostle Paul, he explains this earlier that we read from Romans chapter 4. Paul explained about Genesis 15, 6. He used that verse to prove that Abram was not saved by good works, but he was saved by faith. See, faith receives and rests upon the promises of God. Faith says, Lord, I trust you to do it all. Faith receives and rests upon God alone for all that he promises. That's what Abram did. That's why he was justified, counted as righteous in God's sight. As the old catechism says, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons us of all of our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's imputed or credited to us. And we receive that. We receive Jesus' righteousness by faith alone. Friends, the same will be true for you. God's means of salvation will not be your works. You cannot save yourself. You need God to save you. And you can be saved through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his righteousness. It's not your giving to the poor, your feeding the hungry, your keeping the law, or whatever good work you're hoping that God will smile upon. You cannot save yourself. Saving faith, justifying faith, looks not to our works, trusts not in our works, but looks to, trusts in, believes God's word and work in Jesus Christ. You need to have the attitude of that old and wonderful hymn which says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Friend, Christian, trust God because he is the creator. And as the creator, he has the power to fulfill his purposes and bring his promises to pass, including salvation. He has done just that in Jesus Christ. We're given yet more reason to trust God in Genesis chapter 15. In verses 7 to 21, we learn that we can trust God because he's the covenanter. This is our second point. Trust God because he is the covenanter. Follow along as I read verses 7 to 21. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Well, these verses, they teach us that we can trust God because he is the covenanter who's committed himself to fulfill his promises. Notice the structure of these verses. They follow a similar pattern, actually, to those we just considered. They begin with a gracious revelation from God to Abram. Verse 7. This raises, once again, a question for Abram. Verse 8. Then God responds and reassures Abram through making or literally cutting a covenant in verses 9 to 21. The Lord, we see here, he once again speaks to Abram. He reminds Abram what he has done. He brought Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. He brought Abram out of that land smothered in paganism and idolatry. And he did it for a reason. To give him the land that he's dwelling in. The Lord is saying, Abram, I did not bring you all this way to not make good on my promises. I'm going to give you this land to possess. Now, before we apply this word to ourselves, we have to remember how it was first applicable to the first audience. Right? When we do Bible application, we need to understand the author's original intention for his audience, and then, in light of Jesus Christ, apply it to ourselves, consider its application for us. So what would this have meant to that Exodus generation that Moses was writing to? They would certainly have been drawing parallels between Abram's experience and their experience. Uh, they should have been thinking, you know, God, he called Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give him a land to possess. We are children of Abram. He has called us out of Egypt to give us the same land to possess. He's telling us that here. Perhaps they would have been singing to one another, this land is your land. This land is my land. Probably not. But they should have known and been encouraged that God did not bring them all that way through all of those plagues, through that walled up water, not to make good on his promise to give them this land. He was not going to let his promises fail. And as Christians, we have actually a parallel experience, don't we? God has brought us out from slavery to sin. And he has promised that he will give us the promised land of heaven to possess. So, today we walk by faith, trusting him day by day. And while we walk, we might actually have some of the same questions that Abram does. There in verse 8, he believes, but he wants the Lord to help his unbelief. Have you ever wanted that back in Genesis chapter 13, for unbelief, we can't forget that back in Genesis chapter 13, verse 7, Moses told us that there were Canaanites living in the land. They were the present possessors of the land. Abram was not. And Abram wants to know how he can know for sure that the Lord will give him that promised land, that possession. Maybe you've wanted a sign from the Lord. 
You know, the last time that Abram asked a question like this, the Lord went through that whole show and tell process, didn't he? And actually, he does it kind of again. The last time it was stargazing, this time the Lord tells him to bring the sacrifices. And Abram obeys all the way, right away, with a happy heart. He probably instinctively knows what God is doing. Because what we see unfold in verses 9 to 21 is similar to common covenant ceremonies in the ancient Near East. Uh, we, what we specifically see here is a land grant ceremony, a covenant land grant ceremony. And Abram, living in that land, probably saw that transaction happen time and time again. That's what God is doing here. He's granting the land to Abram. Abram, so he dutifully collects those sacrifices. He obeys. He seems to understand that God's going to cut half over and against each other. It probably means opened up. So there's a lane between them. Uh, pulling all of these words of prey, gather. And Abram, he shoes them away, probably because he doesn't want the covenant ceremony to be. He was likely fully expecting to be someone who kind of made this covenant vow. Puts Abram into a divine sleep. Uh, what happens to Abram here is similar to actually what happened to Adam back in the garden. When God made Adam a covenant partner in Eve. Now, what we need to remember about covenants in the ancient Near East and the Bible is that there are parties, there are promises, and there are punishments. Abram and the Lord are the parties of the covenant. That has to be the case, given what we read there in verse 18. We're told that on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, or literally cut a covenant with Abram. But what are the promises of the covenant? We find them there in verses 13 to 20, with a bit of prophetic narrative thrown in. In verses um, 13 to 16... God reveals to Abram the history that his people will traverse before they take full possession of the promised land. And notice that these promises of land are assuming lineage. So the promises of the covenant are land and lineage. People and place will be afflicted, and they will be in these verses. They will be sojourners. They will be afflicted, and they will be servants. Verse 13. But God will bring judgment on that nation, and they shall or will come out with great possessions. Verse 15 to his fathers in peace. He will be buried in a good old age. Verse 15. All this shows God's certainty and commitment. And his sons, Abram's sons, will come back to the land. Verse 16. Abram's sons will settle the land. Abram's people will have a place. And God will make sure of it. When you think about it, these verses really actually tell the story of the Exodus generation, don't they? Wasn't it during Joseph's day, which we read about at the end of Genesis... Where Abram's offspring went down to Egypt, they were sojourners, but they stayed actually as slaves and servants. And according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, they stayed 430 years. That amounts to roughly four generations, verse 16. Clearly, the 400 number in our text, I think, is a rounded number. Still, it was only after God brought judgment on the nation of Egypt that afterward, Abram's offspring came out with great possessions, robbing the Egyptians as they left Egypt. These words, and they must be saying to themselves, all that God promised and coveted to Abram is coming true. We can trust our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's going to give us the land. But they also learned another lesson from this passage too. You see verse 16? Abram's offspring would come back to the land in the fourth generation because... The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, there is a gap between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. Israel's history is intertwined with God carrying his purpose out 
across generations and across the globe, the people of Israel might not have understood that God had some business to do with the Amorites while they were enslaved in Egypt. And that's why their enslavement was prolonged, why their suffering was prolonged. They might not have understood that God purposed to allow the wickedness of the Amorites to mount, to mount up to the heavens so that the people of Israel would become his instrument of punishment of their wickedness and sin. The Amorites' punishment would be the means, actually, by which Israel would come to possess the land. Here God gives Israel a glimpse into why he delayed the fulfillment of his promises, of the beginning of bringing them into the promised land. God's grace toward Israel was intertwined with his judgment upon the Amorites. And I wonder if, if you've considered that there might be a similar reason for why there is a delay in our experience of the fulfillment of God's promises. I mean, Jesus has said he's gone ahead to prepare a place for us. Why are we not there now? Why is there a gap between that promise and the fulfillment of it? Maybe there is a delay in our inheritance of the promised land of heaven because the wickedness of the world needs to mount up to the heavens before Jesus returns and washes it clean in a flood of judgment. It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. Both the wheat and the tares, they kind of grow up together in the field of the world. They live in the same field, they enjoy the same sun, but they also endure the wind that blows and the rain that beats. And the wheat is even afflicted by the tares to a certain extent as weeds hurt and choke any real crop. But then, Jesus says, they're harvested and separated to their eternal destinies. Clearly, it's an image of his people and those who've rejected him. It's only after that judgment that Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 43. After, just like the Exodus generation has to endure affliction and difficulty for us. The Apostle Paul did see in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, that it is through, but through relations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Not around, but through. It was only after Jesus suffered that he entered his glory. It was only after the people of Israel came out of the Exodus, wandered through the wilderness, endured difficulty there, and conquered, and then went in, that they enjoyed the promised land. And we should not think that our path will be any different. Suffering comes before glory. And as hard as it is for us to believe, God is at work even in our affliction. While different evils in this world may be doing something to us, God must be doing something in us. And he is certainly doing something for us. He is preparing that place for us, even if we cannot see it clearly. And maybe God has another purpose too. Maybe there is a delay in our inheritance of the promised land because he has commissioned us to go and make disciples of all nations, to carry out that gospel conquest, so to speak. Maybe God wants us to be part of gathering in the children of Abram, those who believe and trust God in faith. Maybe God is being patient and he's pushing each one of us to be preachers of his gospel of grace so that in the words of J.C. Ryle, heaven may be more full and hell may be more empty. Beloved, we may have to wait. We may have to endure the difficulties of this world because God is up to something in the fulfillment of his promises. We often forget that there's a gap between promise and fulfillment. If a father promises his children ice cream after dinner, and I'm sorry 
that all my food illustrations almost always have to do with ice cream. It's a wonderful food. But if a, a father promises his children ice cream after dinner, they're going to have to wait until after dinner to the fulfillment of that promise. And their tummies, not their tongues, children, but their tummies will scream for ice cream until they get it. And so it is with us. Our hearts hunger for heaven until God gives it to us. Our God has not told us how long it will be until Jesus returns and we receive our very great reward, but we really can trust him. He is up to something. We might not understand it completely, but he is a good father. He is our shield, and he will do what he said. How do we know that? Because of his personal involvement in this covenant. You see verse 17? Read Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Do you understand what's going on here? Do you remember the, the elements of the covenant that I mentioned earlier? Parties, promises, and punishments. Well, we have parties and promises. We've got parties in God and Abram. We've got promises, lineage and land. You'll have a people and you'll have a place. You'll possess it. But what about the punishments? They're actually symbolized in those dead animals that are laid out in two rows. You see, when ancient covenants were formed, uh, those covenants were binding. There were sanctions that were binding upon them on the fulfillment of those covenantal promises. If those who participated in the covenant did not keep their end of the bargain, if they did not keep their promises, show their commitments, they would, in this case, death. So to show their commitments, they would walk between these rows of animals, up and down, these two parties of the covenant. They'd make their promises to one another. In effect saying, upon pain of death, I will keep my promises. May what has happened to these animals happen to me if I do not keep my promises. So do Abram and Yahweh walk between the two rows of dead animals? No, it's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, both of which actually represent the Lord. We may not get this imagery kind of on first read, but the people of Israel at Mount Sinai would have. How did God make himself known to the people of Israel when he led them out of Egypt? By cloud and a pillar of fire. That Smoking fire pot calls to mind the cloud, and the flaming torch calls to mind the pillar of fire. Perhaps even closer to home, Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, we read these words. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Notice who undertakes the punishments of the covenant. It is God himself, not Abram. God is communicating to Abram that he will take the punishments of the covenant. He and he alone if he does not bring his promises to pass. God is guaranteeing upon pain of death that he will keep his promises to Abram to give him a people and to give that people a place to possess. God is the covenanter who can be trusted because he can do and will do all his holy will. You want to know how you can trust me, Abram? I swear to you under pain of death that I will keep my promise. That's God's answer to Abram. That's God's covenant pledge. So when the Exodus generation heard this story of God's covenant with Abram, they had to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God would give them the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girishites, and the Jebusites. They would have known for certain that God would give them the land of the termites, as one Old Testament professor loved to say. 
Yes, God would be faithful. But do you notice something? Or better, do you notice that something is actually missing? Do you remember the first section ended with a declaration that Abram believed God? It ended with Abram's response to God's reassurance. But what do we have here? Where's the response? Moses has strategically arranged this narrative to call out the faith of the Exodus generation. That's why he's ended the narrative this way. Essentially saying to the children of Abram, are you going to have faith like Abram? Here are these promises. I've committed myself to you in them. Will you believe like Abram? Think about it. They would have been staring at that list of nations in the promised land in verses 19 to 21. They would have seen the history of their lives, how God unfolded them. And it was just as he had said in verses 13 to 16. And they would have heard God promising to take on the punishments of the covenant, thus ensuring through divine determination, through the covenanter's commitment, that they would possess the promised land of Canaan. Will you believe? Are you going to believe God like Abram believed God? Give your response of faith to him now. Start marching toward the promised land and don't look back to Egypt. What about us? What about you? Perhaps you want to know how you can really know for sure that you can trust God. Perhaps you want to know how you can be certain that God will keep his promises to you. Perhaps you want an equally dramatic sign from God, like the one that Abram gave here. Beloved, I'm here to tell you today that God has done that and more. He hasn't sent us a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. He has sent us his son. He has given us his son. Jesus is the great son of Abram. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. That's how the New Testament opens. He's the son of Abram. He's also the son of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. God has personally come in the flesh to seal and secure a covenant in his own blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred. That's Jesus' death. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Paul tells us that Jesus underwent the curses of the old covenant for us and for our salvation. So in Galatians chapter 3, curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promise really spirit through faith. Do you want to know if you can really trust your life to God? Look to Jesus. The creator stepped into the creation to prove it to you, that you could trust him. He stepped into his creation in order to save sinners like you and me. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He never sinned. He didn't need righteousness to be reckoned to his account because he was perfectly righteous. He obeyed every single word that God the Father uttered. He lived a righteous life for us so that his righteous life could be reckoned to our account when we believe in him. Do you want to know if you can really entrust your life to God? Look to the cross. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant in his own blood when he died on the cross. On the cross, he bore the curse of the covenant that you broke, that we broke, that we all broke in our sin. Friend, you cannot keep the conditions of the covenant. 
And you certainly cannot bear the eternal wrath of God for your sin. But Jesus can. He has done that for sinners in his death on the cross. Do you want to know if you can really entrust your life to God? Look at Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He was raised so that all who trust in him might be forgiven of their sins and be assured of their forgiveness. Do you want to know if you can really entrust your life to God? Look at Jesus' ascension to the throne in glory. He ascended there. He reigns there. He's gone ahead of his people to prepare a place for us there. And he has promised to come back and to get us and to bring us to himself. Do you want to know if you can really entrust your life to God? Look at the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. All those who trust in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment on our eternal inheritance in the promised land of heaven. Christian, the Holy Spirit living within you is a down payment, an assurance that you will inherit glory. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that you really can entrust your life to him. That the curses of the covenant fell upon Jesus so that they might not fall upon you. And so that you might receive the promised land of heaven. Friend, turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you want to know more about what that looks like, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news, about how you can be certain. I'd love to assure you that you really can entrust your whole life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we conclude, dear Christian, I want to say a few more words to you, especially in light of our celebration of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. I want to circle back to what I said to you at the beginning. Beloved, maybe you have come here this morning wondering if you can really trust God with a whole host of things in your life. Your anxieties, your career, your loneliness, spouse, children, your health, your future, whatever it might be for you. Christian, you need to know that just as God demonstrated his guarantee to bless Abram in the stars and in the covenant, so he has demonstrated his love and commitment to bless you in his son and in the new covenant that Jesus Christ inaugurated in his own blood. Jesus drank the cup of curse of the covenant so that you would know the cup of blessing of the covenant. Beloved, remember and believe the words of Paul in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how he not also with him graciously give us all things. Christian, when you are asking, God, can I really trust you? Maybe even in these next few moments. When you're asking, can I really trust you? Take the cup of the new covenant that symbolizes Jesus' blood shed for you and believe like Abram. Believe that God, as your creator, has all power to bless you and bring his promises to pass. Believe that God as covenanter has said in his son, Jesus bore your curse so that I could bring you home. He who called you is faithful and he will surely do it. The real question is not, can I trust God? In light of what God has done in Jesus Christ, the real question is, will you trust God? Will you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have every reason to trust faithful creator as the faithful covenanter. We have every reason to trust you. So Lord, help our unbelief. You know how weak our faith is at times. 
So, Father, draw near to us and strengthen our faith and our grip on the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that it is not the strength of our faith, but the strength of our Savior that guarantees our inheritance and glory. So, Father, help us to love him day by day. Help us to walk in faith. And when we are weak, Father, would you make us strong? Remind us of your goodness and grace to us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.